This has already been a good morning, right? So amazing to me, and uh, I have such a joy of giving smackies to so many precious children, and I just love that. I want you to know uh, it's a delight, and I do want to also um, say happy Mother's Day, and uh, thank you for being here on this uh, very, very beautiful day. Well, parenting is uh, not an easy thing, right? Recently, I read about a mom, and moms, when children are young, are always exhausted, right? I mean, that's just the way it is, and uh, she described several sleepless nights. She wakes up in the morning with a haze, I mean, just like fog, fog, and she grabs, as she's ready to go out the door, her two pearl earrings in one hand and grabs two Tylenol in the other. And as she describes, she says, guess which one I swallowed with my glass of water? Um, so if you're a younger parent here today, you know, hang in there because my friends, most of them now are grandparents. I'm not one yet. But uh, they say it's worth the reward for surviving parenthood, okay? So just hang in there. Parenting is uh, not an easy thing. Uh, but being parented is not an easy thing either, is it? I mean, kids, it's really hard to hear your parents say things like, um, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You know, it's like going, having a nurse getting ready with a long needle and saying, this really isn't going to hurt. You, know, you really don't believe it. But take my word, it works out later. But growing up is one of the hardest things in life to do. Uh, and uh, on this Mother's Day, I, of course, think of my mom. Uh, my mom's role in uh, helping me grow up was significant, let me just say that. <laughs> my amazing mom was not the major disciplinarian, but she had her moments. And uh, it wasn't exorcism, <laughs> but it came close. Let's just call it that. On a couple of occasions, I'd heard a lot of words from my fellow students at school as a kid, right? A lot of words that weren't supposed to be brought into my home. And uh, as a kid, I had a potty mouth. I mean, I just have to tell you that it's a miracle that I can control my tongue today. But my mom helped out. Because on two or three occasions, when she had it after stern warnings, she grabbed this wet dishcloth next to the sink. And uh, this was classic. My mom's name was Delight, by the way. This is classic Delight Nelson work. She grabbed that dishcloth, put a bunch of yucky-tasting soap on it, and just poured it on there and stuck that in my mouth. And I remember protesting loudly and telling my friends at school what a terrible mom I had. But as I got older, I began to realize that perhaps she had something going for her. You know, maybe she in some way, moms knew everything, right? Maybe she knew that I was going to do a lot of talking for a living, that I was going to be a sermonator or something, I don't know. But she taught me the importance that words matter and that my tongue needs to be controlled. Now, I don't know what your parents have done or are doing to help give you discipline. Your parents may not use the washcloth treatment, but maybe they have a night curfew you don't like, or maybe they did. Maybe they had a limit on television watching or strict rules about eating those ghastly Brussels sprouts before dessert. That was always a good one, right? Vegetables first. But I want to suggest to you that you probably didn't like it at the time. It's just the nature of being a kid. Take my word for it, kids. Uh, it gets better later. But you maybe have a different perspective now, right? I remember Schaefer and Sarah. We did a lot of things wrong. I mean, we're not perfect parents. I mean, you know, Liz is much better than me. But I remember after Schaefer and Sarah, our two children, were ready to leave the nest, they actually said we did something right. It's pretty cool. Um, and I don't remember exactly the occasion, but it was amazing. I, you know, I was just overwhelmed by it. And they said, Mom and Dad, 
We are so glad that you didn't let us watch TV very much or play video games. We always limited that. They said, you had us read books, and now we're so glad you did it. Something about this parenting deal is hard. And uh, it's hard to be parented. And with parenting comes discipline. And the question for us is not only do parents discipline us, but the question is, does God discipline us? That's a big question. A God who disciplines us is a stretch to many in our time. How many of us have thought, well, if you were running the entire universe, how much time would you have to hang out with me? Right? I mean, he's got a lot going on. So what is this idea about God's discipline? It's a mysterious thing, first of all. In Oxford, Professor Richard Dawkins, a very articulate atheist, dismisses the idea of the wrath of God or the discipline of God in any way as cosmic child abuse. Hmm. That's one way of looking at it. But what does the Bible say? What does the writer of Hebrews say? And I want to suggest to you that the writer of Hebrews takes issue with Dr. Dawkins. And rather than cosmic abuse, what the writer of Hebrews will tell us this morning as we examine a very challenging text and a very challenging subject is that divine discipline is actually an expression of divine love. So I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament as we continue our exploration of this book. If you're visiting with us, our church family across our campuses has been looking at this marvelous book in the New Testament called Hebrews. And uh, if you recall, in the first 11 chapters of Hebrews, there is a strong sense that our salvation is something God does. It's not something we do. The completed work of Jesus makes our salvation complete in his atoning death on the cross. First 11 chapters of Hebrews emphasizes this over and over again. But now as the Hebrew writer begins to turn the corner of living this life out, we now begin to see that spiritual formation, not salvation, but spiritual formation in Christ-likeness is a joint enterprise. So last week we began in chapter 12, and the writer of chapter uh, of Hebrews in the opening verses focuses on, you remember, what we are to do to grow spiritually, to be spiritually formed. What we are to do. And last week's text had three big themes in the text. That is, we are to what? Travel light, train well, and stay focused on the finish line, on Jesus. That's the big idea. But now beginning with three, all the way through 11, the writer turns in this joint enterprise of spiritual growth and formation and as we look at 3 through 11 this morning, he focuses on what God is doing to help us grow spiritually. So the interconnection is what we do, now what God does, and we may not like the answer. What he says is he focuses on this phrase of divine discipline. So because it is a murky, mysterious, and challenging topic, I'd like to raise two questions that are foundational for our understanding this morning. Questions embedded in the text itself underlying what he's saying. First, what is divine discipline? What is it? What on earth is this thing? And secondly, what is it for? So if you're following along, taking notes, putting sort of your mental scaffolding around this text, 
Those are the two embedded questions in the text. What is divine discipline and what is it for? So first, let's look at what is divine discipline. In verses 3 through 9, you will notice that there are two ideas. It is an expression of God's love and an affirmation we are God's beloved children. First, look at verses 3 through 6. Now again, we have said in this series of Hebrews that the literary work of the Hebrew writer is one of the highest in the New Testament with borrowing lots of classical Greek and the literature is really refined and beautiful and it's intricately connected. So I want you to follow the flow of it. In verses 3 through 6, there is a switch. The verses 1 and 2, the guiding metaphor is an athletic race, right, that drives it. A race. Faith is like a race. Now the writer switches another guiding metaphor that is like a shadow over the entire text. And that is, it is the metaphor of parental discipline. We will see this emphasized by the literary device of repetition. And you will notice two words that jump out at you at the text in an extraordinary barrage of intensity from a literary standpoint. First is the word discipline. It appears nine times, or eight times in nine verses. That's a lot, okay? And also with that, on the heels of that, is the word sons, or son, and that is six times in the text. So that must be something important for us to get, right? So the word for discipline in the Hebrew or in the Greek language is a word that is tied to children. It's very closely tied to it. It is tied to loving parental discipline or correction and instruction. And the Hebrew writer borrows from Greek wisdom and Old Testament wisdom. It is immersed in wisdom. Now we know this because he's going to quote wisdom literature in just a moment. But I want you to see its development. It is framed in wise living that leads to human flourishing. In verse 3, you'll notice he says, I'm concerned for you. Remember, this is a sermon. His listeners, that you're going to toss in the towel when things get tough. So weary and faint-heartedness is his theme. But also, he says, you have not struggled to the point of sin. Now, there's much embedded in this phrase, struggle against sin. Uh, not to the point of shedding blood. And it certainly is an allusion to Jesus in this Garden of Gethsemane. But the main focus is persecution. They have not yet faced the intense heat of martyrdom. So he says, don't give up. Don't give up. Now, how are they to process being persecuted for their faith? How are, what are they to make of what God is doing? And they have questions just like you and I do. Where is God? What does this mean? And they're ready to throw in the towel. Now, the writer answers their cry of their heart with two words, divine discipline. Divine discipline. What do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of it? It's divine discipline. Now, before diving into verses 5 through 6, let me say this and hear this clearly. The topic of suffering and trials is a complex reality in Holy Scripture. There is a great deal of mystery embedded in the pain we experience, the hardship and suffering we experience in a broken world. And we want to grasp that all suffering is ultimately because of our sin, right? Because of our fall in Genesis 3. When sin and death entered the world, suffering came with it. But saying that, hear me carefully, all suffering, while not punitive, is formative, In other words, God is able to take pain and suffering in all its complexity of causation and corollary and make something good of it. That's where the writer is. Now notice in verses 5 through 6, as I alluded earlier, 
The writer of Hebrews goes to wisdom literature. He quotes Proverbs 3. Uh, and you'll notice in the text of, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Notice when. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son in whom he receives. Now, when we notice the context of Proverbs 3, verse 1 of Proverbs 3, we understand here that this is in the context of wisdom literature. It's not saying a direct causation of suffering equals discipline. But it is saying there is a general principle of the goal of human flourishing that God is involved in in our life. And the phrase in poetic literature of Hebrews and of Proverbs is this, the length of days, years of life, and peace. This is in Proverbs 3.1. And that's a picture of human flourishing. So what the Hebrew writer does is he borrows from the Old Testament this quote, and he does it to communicate one big idea. He brings out the heavy weight of Old Testament wisdom. Remember, most of the listeners are Jewish. So he plucks Proverbs 3, and here is his big idea. He says, this is what has been said all along, that divine discipline is an expression not of God's anger to his people, or indifference in this case, but of his divine love. In other words, he is saying, as his children, God wants the best for you and me. And God is willing to move heaven and earth to accomplish our growing up. And he will do major remodeling in our lives to accomplish it. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, who had a very different worldview than Richard Dawkins, but who had a worldview like Richard Dawkins, he was an atheist for most of his life. But he came to Christian faith on the heels of how the Christian faith addresses suffering and evil. All worldviews wrestle with this issue. But it was suffering and evil that led, in a large part, of C.S. Lewis coming to faith. And here's what he writes in Mere Christianity. He says, and I'll read it slowly, listen to this, it's just brilliant. Imagine yourself as a living house. Got that? God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. You say, what on earth is he up to? <laughs> right? Have we said that to God? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He is throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, <laughs> making courtyards. And you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. He's a great Brit, isn't he? But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself, after all. See, what Lewis is saying is that God has something divine up his sleeve. And he is deeply committed to you and me to help us grow up. And our spiritual growth is hard work not only for us, but also for God. We often miss this in this great text of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is one of the most famous texts of salvation, right? For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, we don't stop there in the Greek language. It continues. 
for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that we may walk in them. Notice this phrase, and it's a building phrase. We are his workmanship. In other words, you can turn to the person next to you and say, you're a piece of work. I'm a piece of work. And the scriptures say we are glorious runes. And God will move heaven and earth. He sent his son after all to make us glorious masterpieces. But it takes a lot of work. It's amazing how God is committed to our spiritual formation. Divine discipline, the text says, affirms that God loves us, but it also affirms that we are God's beloved children. Notice where the text goes. The irony is that when we are often facing hardships in our lives, anybody facing hardships here this morning? Is it not our tendency, certainly is mine at times, to question God? Like, God, what are you doing? And we often say, where is God when it hurts? Where is God when it hurts? But this text reframes the question completely. It's not where is God when it hurts. What is God doing to help me grow up? The logic is compelling here. In verses 7 through 9, you'll notice it's simply this. If you have not experienced divine discipline, then that raises the question whether you really are a Christian. Whether you or I are a part of the family of God. Because God only disciplines those who are his sons. Now imagine this. Dads, moms, I remember this when my kids were young, is going to the pickup line at school with your minivan. You still have minivans, right? I mean, we had minivans. That was a big deal in our day. We were hip with our minivans, just lines of minivans, right? So imagine going to Awesome Kids Preschool or your child's elementary school. You get in line in your minivan or your car or whatever, um, and the parent in front of you who goes to the school jumps out of their car. Got that? And they head right for your son or daughter who's coming out of school, who they perceive is misbehaving. And they go and discipline that kid. What would be your response? (laughs) You would share, well, a piece of your mind you were ill afford to lose. At minimum. At minimum. You might punch their lights out. Ram their car. I don't know. Have a restraining order. Why? You have every good reason to be ticked off. Because we all know you don't discipline a child that's not your own. God doesn't do that either. That's what the text says. Now, Eugene Peterson, who is brilliant in so many ways, uh, who did the paraphrase, the message, knocks this out of the park with his brilliance. Let me read his paraphrase. He says, my dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as a dear child. This trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training. The normal experience for children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. 
We call that abuse, right? Rightly so. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us. So why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? Are you embracing God's training? Is God's discipline of you a dead end to faith or an open door to faith? After unpacking what divine discipline is in this parental metaphor, now the writer addresses the question, what is divine discipline for? What is its purpose? What is its target? Look at me at verses 10 through 11. For they, that means our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, notice, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Rather than pleasant, but later it yields, notice, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what is discipline for? What is divine discipline for? What we will see here are two answers. Divine discipline by God makes us stronger and takes us deeper. Makes us stronger, takes us deeper. Look first at it makes us stronger. Verse 10, we notice the text, and we say, the text says that it's for our good. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean sort of a Romans 8.28, general ultimate good? God works all things together for good? Yeah, a little bit. But the context helps us here. What good does the writer have in mind? Now, you will notice in Hebrews, there is a connecting thread. There are many of them in the fabric of its beauty. But around this word, endure, throughout the whole book. But here in verse 12, it finds compaction. And what we have here is in verse 1, 2, 3, and 7, in a literary bookend called an inclusio, we have endure, endure, endure. There's something going on here that discipline allows us to endure. It's not just desire that gives us endurance. It is discipline. Now, one of the things I love to do is I like to watch the Olympics, uh, both winter and summer. But there's one sport in Summer Olympics that absolutely makes me wince. And you've seen it because these massive weightlifters pick up these barbells. You know, just massive with these belts are like this. I can't quite do that. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm not exactly the Incredible Hulk here today. But... <clears throat> They pick up these bars, you know, just massive weights, and the bars just bend. And they jerk that thing and stand under it, right? And push it up. This word is a compound word in the Greek language of an athlete just like that. It is bearing under the weight that is heavy and standing up rather than dropping it. So the writer says... Divine discipline is to help you bear the weight so you can finish the race well. The late Dallas Willard, who was a former philosophy professor at USC and a dear friend of Christ's community, regularly reminded us in so many ways that we are now training for reigning. And that's what this writer's saying. Your training now what you are doing and what God is doing in and through you 
is reigning preparation for later. Growing up, the Hebrew writer says, it's hard work. It's hard work. And we need to keep the big picture in mind. Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. Same idea of fainting in Hebrews. We don't give up. We don't lose heart. Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Travel light, train well, stay focused on the finish line. God is preparing us for a glorious future. And he will move heaven and earth to get us ready to reign and to serve him forever. It's not, where are you, God, when I hurt? It's, God, how are you? How are you helping me grow up? Divine discipline takes us out of the shallow waters into a deeper faith. It's the kind of faith we already encounter in Hebrews chapter 11. Isn't it marvelous? How did these people get there? God disciplined them and prepared them. Divine discipline takes us deeper. Not just makes us stronger. Don't miss it. It takes us deeper. Notice the phrase that we may share in his holiness. What do you think when you hear that word holiness? It's got a black eye today. Sure, because of abuse, because of arrogance, because of self-righteous people looking their nose down at others. Holiness is a really important idea. That's not what it's talking about in this text. Holiness is becoming who you were created to be in creation as image bearers of the perfect God. Being whole and integral. We can't even begin to imagine what that is like without sin. Notice the text that we may share in his holiness. That's what divine discipline does. It helps us grow in Christ-likeness in a deepening intimacy with Christ. The Apostle Peter uses the same language and describes it as partakers of the divine nature. That's not just in the new heavens word. That is now. The word fruit, you see, peaceful fruit of righteousness, is a very interesting phrase in Hebrews. It's uh, not just literary window dressing. <laughs> it's stunning in the original language. And I want you to notice the fruit language. Throughout Scripture, fruit captures the flourishing life you and I were created to live, that Jesus has come to die on the cross and glorious race in it so we can live it. It's a flourishing life. In Psalm 1, in wisdom literature, the whole Psalms says that we will be like a tree that bears its fruit in its season. That we are flourishing. Jesus said in John 15 that if we abide in him, we bear much fruit. And the Apostle Paul beautifully links our fruitfulness, our growing up in Christ, God's work in us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, when he describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is 
highly at work in helping us grow up. We must not miss that going deeper with Christ is not just about desire. It's about our discipline and God's discipline of us. See, we often desire a deeper life, I trust, deeper intimacy with Christ. But let's just face it, we don't want the divine discipline that goes with it. We just can't wait for a mountaintop experience, as wonderful as those are, to share with our friends. But we don't want the dark night of the soul where God seems absent. Let me just say, divine discipline and all its mystery, it's very mysterious, comes not in God's dramatic intervention in our lives only, but often in my experience and so many experiences of the saints of old, not that I'm a saint like that, but in the seeming extended absence of God in our life. Divine discipline must be seen not only through the lens of what God may be doing in your life, but also through the lens of what God may not be doing as well that you want him to do. Notice the climactic phrase in verse 11, by those who have been trained by it. Notice the word training. It's not just trying harder, it's being it's training better. Not only our training in the spiritual disciplines, but God training us as a loving father. And that involves discipline. So what difficulties are you facing in life today? This is a difficult text. We seldom talk about discipline, divine discipline. And perhaps you're here today and you're still not a Christian. Maybe it's an obstacle of faith, this whole issue of suffering and pain in your life. But clearly, all suffering and evil is difficult for any worldview. But again, C.S. Lewis of Oxford came to faith through his understanding of suffering through a Christian worldview. And he said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience. He shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Can I encourage you to pray this morning? God, if you are real, Help me to see you in the midst of suffering and pain. Help me to hear you and to reveal yourself. Please reveal yourself to me. Are you open, friend? Are you open to see pain and suffering in your life as not a dead end of faith, but a pathway of love to faith? Many of you here this morning are followers of Christ. Perhaps you're growing weary in your faith. You are faint-hearted. You're ready to throw in the towel. This is what this text addresses. Maybe it's a struggle at work or school that's really getting you down. Maybe it's a vexing problem with your business. It's keeping you up at night. And maybe you're struggling with a stinging failure you have just experienced this week or a dream that is just shattered in front of you. Or maybe it's a family conflict with a parent, a sibling, a son or daughter that is driving you to your knees. You find yourself, often like I do, crying out to God, God, where are you? Where are you? When I hurt so much. And perhaps it's time for you and me to hear what this text teaches. And to say to God, in the midst of our pain and perplexity and mystery, thanks, Lord, doing whatever it takes to help me grow up 
in my faith. Perhaps you're facing a dark night of the soul. God seems completely absent to you. Most of the followers of Jesus testify to those extended periods in their life where God seems absolutely gone. He's asking you to trust him even when you don't sense he's there. To deepen your faith. Against the backdrop of the mystery of suffering and all its dimensions, is it possible in that mysterious mix that some of us and some of what you are facing today is divine discipline? Could it be that a loving parent, a loving God, is at work in your circumstance, your situation, your heart, longing for you to grow stronger in your faith and deeper in your walk with Christ? I don't know what difficulties you're facing in your life. I have a bunch of them. Nor do all I know the reasons why we face them. It's complex. But on the authority of God's word, I do know this with great confidence. God is more committed to your long-term holiness than your short-term happiness. And at the end of the day, we can have confidence that God loves us so much that he will force us out of the shallow waters of a superficial spirituality and immaturity into the depths of a maturing faith. On December 26, 2010, one day after Christmas, our dear friend Farshid Fati was arrested in the middle of the night by Iranian security police. Since that time, he has been in prison in Tehran's Evan prison. And just recently, Farshid was badly hurt in prison and he has been refused medical attention. Not long ago, a poem Farshid has written in prison found its way to the outside. And I want to read it to you. And I'll try not to cry like a baby. It is entitled, My Wilderness is Painful but Lovely. Farshid writes, My wilderness is painful but lovely. Some parts of my wilderness are covered with thorns and hurt my feet. But I love it. And that's why I call it lovely pain. My wilderness is so hot that my tears disappear before falling on the ground, but it is cool under your shadows. My wilderness is like an endless road, but short compared to eternity. My wilderness is dry, but an oasis with the Holy Spirit's rain. My wilderness seems to be a lonely trip, but I am not alone. My beloved is with me. Not only him, but my faithful brothers and sisters, I carry them all in my heart. My wilderness is dangerous but safe because I dwell between his shoulders. So I love my wilderness. Because it it takes me into the deeper part of you, Lord, and no one can separate me from your arms forever. Friends, growing up in our faith is one of the hardest things in life to do. We must remember God is more committed to our long-term holiness than our short-term happiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have probed this morning a great mystery of all the complexity of evil and suffering and pain in our lives and in the world. Somewhere in there, you are actively involved, often in disciplining us. 
We remember in Hebrews 5, 8, that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. How much more do we need your instruction? Holy Spirit, speak into each one of our lives. Amen.